Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. We are so excited to be starting up these networking nights with Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching for the third season. If you made it onto one of these in the past or have listened to the podcast, you will know that it's a very free-flowing conversation and we always have a great time. We've had the privilege of talking to many of you in the last bit and have heard stories of the connections that have been made both in person and online. Tonight, we're excited to have Daniel Salatin with us. Steve and I had the extreme privilege of meeting him this summer at Polyface for the gathering through the Stockman Grass Farmer. There's going to be a video available of this event really soon. There were some amazing speakers at that event, and it was it was a great two days. <laughs> Check out the Stockman Grass Farmer website because it is going to be really good, and you will want to get a copy of that video. Um, so Daniel is currently the day-to-day operations manager of Polyface and has a ton of experience and knowledge when it comes to grazing and animal handling. So the topic of tonight is small animals on a large scale, but if you want to go on a tangent, we look forward to that too. Steve, do you want to introduce yourself and your thoughts on tonight's topic? Yes, thank you, Amber. Uh, yeah, my name is Steve Kenyon. We're with uh, Greener Pastures Ranching. And we've been working with uh, Grow for a number of years here now, putting on this uh, Wednesday night networking, and it is far more successful than I ever thought it was going to be. Uh, it originally started up just because when COVID hit, we'd you know there was no more conferences, there was no more getting together and networking, and and I found that in my career, probably most of my knowledge comes from seminars and conferences, and a good part of that is the networking after. So. I, I just said to Amber one day, I said, you know what, we need to make a, a session that's just networking, no presentations, no, no, no formal, formal talks. Let's just have a topic and maybe a guest speaker and let's just have a Q&A. So, um, and it's all kind of grown from there. So really happy uh, with the turnout. Thanks for everybody showing up. A little bit about us, I guess, uh, Greener Pastures Ranching. We are from uh, Alberta, Canada by Edmonton. A little town called Westlock is where the Gateway Research Organization is home-based out of. And uh, we actually do at Greener Pastures, we do a custom grazing operation. So we have uh, uh, other people's cattle and we lease a bunch of land and we do a rotational grazing system on on that land. We also have some uh, pigs on the land. My manager this year has a flock of sheep and we've done chickens in the past as well. So uh, we do a little bit of everything, but uh, excited to be here. And uh, thanks for everybody to showing up again. So, and super excited about Daniel. We were just down at Polyface Farms, uh, gathering at Polyface through Stockman Grass Farmer. So it was really neat to be down there. And I got to go uh, move cattle with Joel Salatin and saw his new little Bronco. That was that was the highlight of my trip because he's got a little little beater, pasture beater like I have. So that was exciting. So I will let uh, Daniel uh, kind of do a bit of an introduction on the topic. And then if you guys have questions, don't even hesitate. Just start putting them in the chat now because you might not, we might not get to all the questions. So um, take her away, Daniel. Thanks for being here. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, uh, Steve and Amber. It's always great to, to chat with you all. And it really is an honor to be on here and, and see such a great group of folks from all over. Quite literally, I'm trying to follow the chats and my goodness, they're, they're from all over. So Anyway, and, and, but most of you from up there uh, are relatives from the north, so um, they're in Canada. Thank you for, for tuning in. So, yeah, I mean, I've been working at Polyface uh, for uh, uh, whole, my whole life, um, and uh, so I've got quite a few years of experience um, in multiple different kinds of animals. Uh, we raise, just in case some of you are not familiar, beef, pork, 
poultry, uh, laying hens, turkeys, meat birds, rabbits, uh, a few sheep, some uh, egg laying ducks. Yeah, so a fairly large menagerie of stuff. I think the topic, if uh, so that, that's what I do. I, I run day-to-day uh, -day operations managing. I train a lot of the stewards and apprentices and staff and very intricately involved in a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff, still you know, process birds. Um, we, we killed our last bird yesterday. So our first, we usually butcher every Wednesday from about the 1st of May through the middle of October. So this is the first Wednesday we haven't butchered since the 1st of May. So we're all very excited to, uh, to not butcher today. We love, we love butchering and it works well and it's profitable, but at the same time, it's nice to uh, not butcher today. So anyway, it's good seasonality. I think, um, you know, the first, the first free uh, announcement type, type takeaway is just seasonality makes things exciting. You can get a lot bigger and go harder for a long time or for a little time if you know that there's a break coming up. And so when you're talking about, you know, small scale, small animals on a large scale and, and, and just growing in general, just getting expanding, expanding in general, having that um, um, uh, break at the end, knowing that there is a break coming and some downtime coming lets you sprint harder uh, when you're when you're needing to sprint. But anyway, um, so we did that. We've got um, our Thanksgiving turkeys wrapping up. So we did those. And our goal is to, again, not have any turkey left over after Thanksgiving. Um, after that, they are very basically worthless. And that's kind of kind of a thing. And then we roll into mostly trying to keep our cows on grass as long as possible um, and try to graze as much as we can through the winter uh, with grazing, stockpiled forage. Pigs are out still a little bit, just kind of giving you an idea what's going on here on the farm. Um, we just had a really, really great acorn crop this year. The, the oak acorns were just everywhere loaded full, uh, tons and tons of acorns. That doesn't apply to many of you on this chat. I'm sorry, but we have the Eastern oak hardwoods and they are just low. I mean, literally, I don't know how much it is. I, there's probably out some, there's probably some data out there somewhere that would tell you, but just walking through the forest right now, I feel like if you vacuumed them all up or picked them all up, I believe you'd probably get more bushels of acorns per acre than you might corn. It's just unbelievable how much is in there. Probably not, but close. It's just a lot of acorns. Um, so when we turn a group of pigs in, they go feedless for, they just eat, they don't eat any feed. They have the self feeder, but they just don't eat feed. That, makes you just they, they just don't eat the feed for like three days it's just easy so it's pretty crazy um so anyway that's kind of us right now um yeah we've got quite a few staff members we just had a lot of our summer staff leave for the winter so we've kind of now got a leaner meaner uh smaller maneuverable team we have two two young ladies as apprentices this year and they are just awesome and can't wait to work with them on a more one-on-one -on -one basis uh they, they left a group of 10 and now they're in a group of two. So same leadership, a lot less uh, students. So it's, it's very cool to, uh, to have that group. So anyway, um, that's us at the moment. So we have questions rolling in already. Etienne yeah. is the first up. Are you ready to go, Etienne? Uh, yeah, ready. There we go. Etienne's one of ours. I, we claim him. 
He's ours. <laughs> yeah, so thanks for coming on tonight. My question is, we grow out 40 pigs, and right now the best way I have to feed them is a grain truck that we can go get bulk feed, and I put it in pails, put on a trailer behind my quad, and drive into the bush pastures. But oh. I'd like to eventually, either next year or in the future, grow to more pigs. But oh. it's going to be way too time-consuming to do it a pill at a time. Yes. I was wondering if you had any ideas for efficiently feeding pigs at a medium scale, because we don't have a tractor. And ah, okay. I can't jump to the scale of buying a tractor right away. Sure. I was wondering if you had ideas or seen other farmers yeah. that have an efficient way of feeding so, and we so you need mostly to be, bush pastures, so we can't drive up the right to it. Okay. So we're mainly trying to get the feed from from a storage bin or a storage tank where they're at your farm, or do you go get it from the store and then take it directly to the pigs? Just trying to better understand your question. Yeah. No, so we use a grain truck, and that's our storage. So we usually get a month of feed out of it at the scale we're at okay. right now. Got it. Okay. Um, and you can't get the grain truck to where you need to feed the pigs. No, because I'm trying to use up our bush instead of the good gotcha. pasture, which they damage. Yeah. I put the sheep <laughs> on the good pasture. Sure, so sure. Gotcha. Quad trails, but it's not big enough to go in there with the bulky, clunky grain truck and everything. Sure. Okay. Well, certainly that is a very uh, universal um, problem. So you're not alone on that. I think. The first couple of things I know that um, uh, my brother-in-law does a lot of sow feeding and he has to feed them every day. And so he does do the whole like side by side with a, he basically fills up the bed of his side by side or the, 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 you know, the container in the back with, with loose feed drives up in there, shovels it out into the, the trough or whatever the feeder and then, you know, goes on. Um, so that is something that, and he raises, he's raised up to like a hundred sows and, and does it that way. And he just drives around with his, with his cart and, and takes care of them. But uh, I think, I think the first thing, uh, what kind of feeder are you using in the paddocks? Does that might help answer my question as well? Uh, so right now we're using, they're kind of little plastic vertical feeders. I ratchet strap, strap into different trees and then I move those feeders as they go. Mm -hmm. And they've got about, they've got four holes for pigs to come and feed from. And we've okay. got four or five of those for the group. Okay. So how much does each one of those hold as far as pounds wise or kilos yeah. or Eight, whatever? Five gallon pails. So the poundage depends on how heavy we are in barley or oats and everything, but okay. eight, five okay. gallon pails. But I'm not opposed to getting bigger feeders or building home feeders as I grow. It's just right now, that's what we had. Gotcha. All right. I need to. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for math question right off the top here. No, <laughs> didn't mean to turn this into a math problem. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So they, they hold about 240, 250 pounds of feed roughly, you know, give or take. So between 200 and 250 pounds. Okay. Um, well, well, number one, that's great. So you have enough storage that you don't have to go out there every day and fill the feeders. Am I right? Up until they get to market weight. Right. So then I had 15 of them get to market weight because my batches are <laughs> spread out. And then I was going out there every day and they were just chowing it down. And next year sure. I'm going to have 50 of them getting market weight nearly the same time. If right. it goes according to how I'm planning. So it's not sure. going to be realistic. I'll be there half the day. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so I think I, th- I think a couple of things. One is um, I would consider my first idea just right off the top would be considering putting Well, for next year. There are some really great um, I don't get any money from them, but we use Osborne feeders. It's a it's the Osborne is the brand. They supply massive, you know, confinement hog operations, but they're really nice, round, like fiberglass bottomed. They can hold you know, multiple, they can get them with multiple sizes and they're really good. And so we found them to be very durable and very, uh, very easy to use. So it's Osborne is the feeder brand and I recommend them. Again, no money from them. I just, they, they seem to work out really well. But the thought on those are, is I would go ahead and since you don't have a tractor yet, I would go ahead and invest in some either small, inexpensive wheeled trailers of some sort or some really nice skidded things. And when you mount these feeders on the skids, and so at least you would be able to rotate your feeders to and from your bush pastures and they would skid behind you. So you can bring the empty one down, fill them, and then the next day or the next week or whatever, you rotate the full ones up and bring some more empties down until you're able to actually drive a you know small grain buggy or something like that. There are some really nice ATV ones. Ah, Trat, I saw one at a farm show and I don't remember the brand, but there's a, a really nice ATV that had a, a battery operated um, auger on it. And it held, I think it held about 250 to 500 pounds of feed, if I'm not mistaken. And it was a couple thousand dollars. It was pretty realistic. Um, again, it's not, it's not chicken feed. It was, it was not nothing, but it also wasn't a tractor either. So it might be a good stepping stone. So look into that and see if that's something that you can work where you can bop that out there and roll that into your, into your feeder. So anyway, we probably can't spend the rest of the night on it, but my two thoughts are first off, maybe some type of skidded or wheeled operation where you can exchange empties for fulls and, or maybe that ATV um, auger operated thing that I saw at a farm show somewhere if you are, if you Google or something, I don't want to just say that's the answer to everything. But if you look it up, uh, do some searching on a um, ATV feed cart or something. There, I've seen them before. I actually thought about buying one just because it was so cool, but I, I stopped because I didn't need it. So anyway, those are my two ideas. I hope that's helpful. Sorry, I don't have a home run for you, but but keep up the good work and moving that bush forward. That's really cool that you're doing that, and I think you're doing great. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe not a home run, but definitely the third base. Thanks, man. Yeah. And there's, it looks like I'm trying to catch, I'm I'm trying to catch up on the comments here. Definitely some ideas here with some, with some stuff going on. So there's probably better ideas out there than just mine. So keep, keep it it out there. Sweet. Thanks. I I think the winner there, Daniel, is the switching and empty for a full, right? Ah. I like that idea. Even if it's, if it's wheeled, um, because then you're taking one trip up there. Right. Right now yeah. you're going up and back and, and if you got to switch things around. So I think that's a, that's a key to that. So I'm not going to belabor this one anymore because uh, <laughs> that's my grain truck he's complaining about and my feeders. So we'll, <laughs> I can tell him all sorts of stuff after. So we'll get on to the next question here. Go ahead, Amber. Okay. Next up we have Larry Wagner. Are you ready to go, Larry? Yes, I am. Daniel, when I read your dad's books, he refers to you as a homeschool dropout. I was wondering what do you do now to expand your knowledge of things? Because I'm sure the situations come up that you, I wish I knew more. 
Like how yeah. do you keep yourself up to date on what you need to know next step? Ah, hey, good, good question. Thank you. That's interesting. Um, yeah, so I, I do consider myself a homeschool dropout, which is about as low as I could go until I came in one day and my son was sitting on the sofa and we were homeschooling him as well. And I said, hey, bud, what's up? He's like, well, I got expelled from homeschool. I was like, how did you do that? He's like, well, we don't need to go into that. So anyway, you can do something worse than dropping out of homeschool. You can get expelled from homeschool. So anyway, uh, <laughs> he, he got back in. But anyway, um, and now is a, and, and actually I got to brag on him. He's a GED graduate and I never did that. So good job for him. He did a great job. Ways that I stay, number one, I'm an auditory learner. So this is, applies specifically to me and not necessarily to everyone else. I love to just talk to people and listen to people. And like, I'm learning from this. I mean, I'm watching the comments over here and there's ideas coming on this better than, than anything. So I love to go to conferences, um, whether it was the Stockman here, the APA conference where the pasture poultry people go. Any, any conference that I can try to get to, I don't go to a lot, but when I go to them, I learn a ton. And like Steve was saying early in this, just the networking time of just, hey, you know, what are you doing different? What is, you know, how do you feed pigs? How do you move chickens? Just those kind of things, because- I think a lot of times we're even discussing this as we're planning the, the pasture poultry conference. I said, you know, we, we don't know what we don't know. Right. And so we just kind of have to be around people that are in our world, but are doing it different. And so I think a lot of times it's just exposing yourself to people that are doing a lot of what you do and not just be like, Oh, I got it. I, you know, they're raising chickens. Okay. I know how to do that. Fine but actually look and listen to what they're doing and why they're doing it. And a lot of times you'll find an answer to a question you didn't even know you had. I think that's what I've found. And so for me, just being, don't, I, it's not like I feel like I suddenly have to read like quantum physics books to get smarter, right? I just need to be around other farmers that are doing interesting things and not negative, <laughs> right? Not negative farmers, but positive farmers that are doing things. And then suddenly, I learned something because they are just talking about what they do. I'm like, oh, hey, that's a great idea. And I didn't even know I had that problem and I didn't even have that question. So for me, it's um, for me, it's just associating with successful people in my field and just being open to things that they're doing. So that's kind of what I do at the moment to try to stay active. And the other thing that that's, that I get to cheat with is we have a lot of young people and well, not just young people, but new farmers coming onto our farm a lot through our, our steward program. And so we get to cheat that way in that I have a lot of new eyes looking at our business on a regular basis. And they're coming from a very diverse group of backgrounds, right? The last year we had, just for, to give you an example, our apprentice group, we had a landscaper who was also a house flipper. We had a uh, young dairy farmer from Florida and we had a, um, an accountant who was middle age, like, you know, mid thirties, an accountant from Denver. And so those three people were with us for a whole year and just added a whole labyrinth of ideas and just, you know, questions and things to our business that I would have never thought to ask. And so I think it's, I think it's not only surrounding yourself with successful people, but it's surrounding yourself with people who ask good questions and that helps you learn about yourself too. Okay. Well, thanks. Excellent, Daniel. I, I too am an uneducated individual. <laughs> and That's yeah. why we're so shy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, to me, it's it's networking, it's mentorship, right? Finding the right mentors, um, going to conferences, 
uh, you know, that that's where I learned. And I'm not a big reader. You know, the number of really good books that I've got on my shelves that I've got three quarters of the way through them. I, str- <laughs> I struggle to get through a book. I'm not, uh, that's not how I learn. Um, but I need the conferences. I need the seminars and definitely mentorship uh, is the biggest one for me over the years, for sure. I'm one of those two. I'll admit it. I'll put up my hand. I did it too. Um, and for me, it's it started off just chasing Steve around and working full-time on the farm and being like, why? Why do you do this? Why? Why do you do it that way? Why? What are you doing? What are you doing now? I was really annoying, I'm sure. Yeah, it was like a seven-year-old following me around for six years. <laughs> I was going to say like a toddler. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Brian, you're up next. Okay, thanks. My question is, uh, we've been butchering beef since 2003, the year that we had BSC up here in Canada. Uh, We've been selling quarters and halves uh, now 20 years. And we kind of hit that imaginary number of 35 to 40. We just can't Mm. seem to sell any more than that. I mean, I lose some customers, either they pass away or they move away. Uh, I gain a few more to cover them again, but it just seems that we've hit that number. And then my son was doing pigs and he got up to this 18 number and we can't seem to get any more than that. So how did did you guys do it? Because I know your numbers are much higher than us. I I mind you have a bigger market right closer to you. Yeah. I mean, certainly. So marketing is, is a, like you said, it's a never ending battle and it's a never ending challenge. I shouldn't say battle challenge. Um, and I totally appreciate that. And, and, and that is an interesting, I hadn't heard those numbers put out there in that way, but I think you're, I think you're right on as far as that kind of imaginary, you know, 20 to 30 beef and, and 15 to 30 hogs, depending on where you are and what you do. I I think what it does is for me, well, certainly, Certainly the way we got over it, I think, would be one, certainly it's a mental hurdle, just like, all right, we're going to get over this 40. So just go. And I'm not saying you're blocking yourself in. I'm just saying that there's certainly that mental stage and you get stuck there for three or four years and you just think, well, this is as far as we can get. Then the the other thought would be we really started changing up where we went to market things. So you mentioned your locale, and that's certainly something to consider. You might have to go further afield. It's where we started. Um, we kind of started our neighborhood drops where we started delivering some product. Um, last couple of years, we started shipping some product. We okay. delivered everything up to three hours away. Okay. Okay. Wow. All right. Good. So you're already doing that. And and I know that, that some areas are just not as urban as where we are. I mean, we can get to, you know, multiple millions of people pretty quick. And that's, that's um, something that that's, that's definitely something that gives us an unfair advantage. Um, like Alan nation would say, but um, I think, I guess we changed not just, just the type of customer that we went after. Um, so we changed going into like, not just the location and the distance and the type of demographic, but like we started going into like restaurants or wholesale or things like that. And I don't know, I apologize for not knowing all the, the ins and outs of what you all can do up there. Of what you all can do up there. So discount my advice if it's not doable in, in Canada. but. I think the idea for us was we really started bumping up our sales when we started. It wasn't so much that we, that we needed the retail sales. So we started selling to some like small grocery stores, like mom and pop things, 
not chains, just small, like health food stores, things like that. And it wasn't so much that we liked selling to them or that that was the big end goal, but it was just to get our name out there more and to get our, our, our just more product visibility. And so whatever, I think, I guess this is why some people like, you know, start a YouTube channel, right? Cause you just need more eyeballs looking at your product. And so whatever is your skill set to develop those more eyeballs on your product is what I would suggest to do. And so again, if you like talking to people, just go talk to more people. If you like going to nice restaurants or breweries or whatever, do that. I, I know of a guy who started selling pigs, same thing. And then he just started diversifying his product and making a lot of like, you know, specialty bratwurst sausage, specialty sausages, um, charcuteries, things like that. And then that changed. Not only could he go to just homeowners and sell them, you know, pork and breakfast sausage and that kind of thing and bacon, but he could go to like the breweries and things like that and have a beer and a broad and things like that. And it changed where he was able to market because of what he was turning his product into. So I think that's, I guess those are kind of the mindsets that I'm trying to, to start you down that road. And again, you probably thought of these, but just to encourage you, that's how we leveled up. Go ahead. We have a Facebook page and a TikTok page and that basically trying to teach people in like the bigger city of Winnipeg or Brandon, um, what we do on the farm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we've done some advertising with local sports teams, like donations, um, Ooh. to else, uh, we gave all the hamburger, that kind mm. of stuff, but it, yep. we're still at that same, you know, sure. Are you, are you able to, I mean, again, are you able to do like retail sales like that into small supermarkets or things like that? Or no, um, I'm actually working with our butcher for, I'm working under his meat hawk, meat hawkers license. So I can okay. deliver his place to their house, but gotcha. uh, we don't do any storage at home uh, um, because, right. because of the regulations, you know? Right. And mm -hmm yourself up to more liability so sure no i understand i understand okay so we, well, we're being but we're butchered at a provincially inspected facility and then we ship it right away to their place um a lot of people like the like i've even defrosted some people's freezers when i get there taking ice out of their freezers and they'll talk oh about it for years they go oh right. my god i thought that you know the beef was coming so right <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, I, I hear you, but I think I think um, I think the product line. I think we found just just to give you an example, we we used to make three different kinds of sausage, like three different varieties of sausage, and put it in two different kinds of packages. We had a bulk sausage and a one ounce link sausage, and that was it. So we had three different spices and two different varieties, and we always. I mean, you know, my mom, if you wanted hamburger patties for breakfast, it was you know. You know, on the patty, you know, make it yourself, and and that was a hamburger patty. And so, I guess I'm just, and you may be doing a lot of this already, but I think I would I would encourage you to figure out to see if talk to your butcher, see if there's anything else creative that you can do with the product, because what we found was every time that we added a different kind of sausage, so we went to a a four ounce link, and then a brat, and then a patty, and then a two ounce patty, and a three ounce patty, and you know, all you like oh my gosh, how many ways are there to do sausage? Apparently one more every time. But when we did that, we didn't, what we found was we thought we would just be moving 
sales of sausage from one kind to another. And that's not what happened. We actually had people buying the same amount of what they were buying and then new customers like, oh, I want this. Or they would buy the same amount of the bulk sausage and buy more patties. So I guess, and I throw that out for the cows too, the beef, you know, I mean, just all the ways that you can get a beef cut, you know, go the high fancy way, uh, get the Denver steak and the tri-tip and put the little ends of the filet into your fajita meat or your stir fry or not stir fry, but your like, you know, fajita saute stuff. Just all those things to make, like we even do that with chicken. Like there's a, a farmer down in um, in Florida and they they trim, like they make all their breast meat. They do boneless, skinless breasts and all their breast meat, they trim down to exactly the same size. And then they take all those trims and sell it as like a ready stir fry product. And they can just sell that as it is. And so it's just, I guess the point is that if, if someone suggests, hey, do you carry this product out of the things that you already carry, you know, beef, pork, chicken, don't discount it as taking away sales from something that you already do. And it's amazing what happens when you add that product in. And then, and again, taking it even further of, again, I don't know if your butcher can do this. I don't know what your regs are, but of course, you know, jerkies and slamis and charcuteries and all that. That's incredible. And some you can, some you can't. I totally get that. But I guess the point is we we went from every time we took a, just a cow and you buy the whole or a half or a quarter, that's basically three different options. And then if you can convert it into having a hundred different options because of all the cuts and the different things, it just changed what people bought. And it helped us get over some of those, those, oh, those humps. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of my thought process anyway. The problem with jerky is it takes so much longer and the butcher is limited on space. So yep. we no, looked I, at that, but it, it just comes down to space and manpower for him. So, yep. Yeah. No, and, and our butcher is very much the same. And I guess what's interesting is then go ahead. And I think this is the other mindset too. That's hard for me. Always. I, I struggle with this all the time and, and maybe you don't, but for me, it is is that there's a lot of people out there who are willing to pay an exorbitant amount of money for something that we would never buy. And so, (laughs) and so I say that to say, just because your butcher says, I don't have time, I don't have labor and I don't have space. Go ahead and ask some of your customers, how much would you pay for blank? Maybe it's just ground beef patties. Maybe it's, you know, preformed meatballs. Maybe it's, you know, again, some of the charcuterie stuff. You might be amazed at what people will be willing to buy. And then you go back to your butcher and you say, no, wait a minute. All right. I know you say you're busy, but like how much would, you know, everybody's got a number, right? <laughs> and so say, you know, would you be willing to do this for me? And how much would it cost? You might find that what he thinks is an exorbitant number is actually not because of what you're going to sell it for. You know, you may never buy your own product. But as long as there's enough people out there that will, boom, yeah. you're going to increase your sales. And so anyway, I, I think that that idea, we, we do that with, with our, like our, the biggest example for that is our boneless ch- chicken breasts. And our boneless chicken breasts for us is like $18 a pound. Well, I would never buy that personally. That's insane. I would just get the chicken, cut it up myself and do that. And the chicken yeah. costs the same amount as, as, a, as a breast. But there are people out there who buy it all day long. It's nuts. And it pays us to do it, even though it's labor intensive and, and somewhat time consuming. Yeah. Okay. Right? Well, th- 
much. Yep. I, I hope that was somewhat helpful. I wish I had something more uh, golden home run for you, but uh, I've looked at the smaller packages, but then you're looking at, uh, you know, someone calls up and they want, you know, 10 pounds of hamburger and I don't deliver yep. 10 pounds of hamburger and we don't have time to have someone at the farm all the time. There's only two of us. So yep. we have them there to sell piecemeal. So we like it with the quarters and the halves because we can deliver it and be done with it. Yep. Yep. And we do hamburger and sausages and patties for all our customers in the fall as well. Cause they usually, if they get a quarter, they're out of hamburger by now. So sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. I get all right. Good luck, sir. Blessings now. All I have to add to that, Brian, is uh, when we did that, I went to hundred dollar packages. Um, so instead of selling, you know, the have and the whole way, we couldn't sell them all. So then we had some storage, you know, freezer space at the time. So we saved, I think 10 or 15 pigs for the, for the freezer space. And then what I would do is sell hundred dollar packages and we kind of worked them up to three or $400 packages too. What I would do is give them a deal on the, you know, the second and third one, if they wanted more, but I would let them partially choose their cuts you know what? I don't like pork steaks, uh, but I, you know, I really like pork chops instead. Well, we'll throw in a couple extra packages of pork chops and stay away from the steaks, but then they get a roast and some ribs and some cutlets and, but we would weigh it out and it would be a certain, you know, uh, weight of different cuts. That way we don't end up at the end of the season, all with one cut left over, right? Because if we, you know, if we just let them buy pieces, we'd be out of bacon and pork chops right away. And then you'd have nothing, you know, how do you sell all the lower cuts to everybody? So that's the way we did it to make sure we don't end up stuck with one type and it seemed to work pretty good. So um, I think Etienne has actually taken that a step further. Now he's, I think he was talking about doing $500 packages, buying a half, you could buy a $500 package. If someone gets a quarter, it's a half of a half because I don't want to be stuck with a bunch of front quarters mm-hmm. and um, everyone's now conditioned to that. So um, it's been 20 years. So I don't think I've had anyone ask for a hind quarter in probably six years. Now. Yeah. Excellent. I, right. I totally, Thanks. I totally forgot about that, Steve. That's a great point is those pre-made boxes and stuff and those packages. And then, and we found that it's, it's, yeah, you're right. We we started with just a couple like that. So you had the quarters or the $100 boxes or whatever. But then it was amazing how many requests we got for all the different specialties of that like $100 to $200 box range. And and that ebbs and flows with with your region and inflation and stuff. But but essentially something that was equivalent of a of a, you know, a fifth or no, an eighth of a beef or something like that where you could get like a $250 animal part and uh and yeah just the 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 combinations were endless you know i mean we had the stew the stew box you know where you just got stew meat and bones and like shanks and things like that and people ate that up and you're like i'd never buy a stew box that's insane but people love it and so it's just a matter of filling that out and so creating if, if you can create those that's a great point steve i should have thought of that too so thanks for adding that in well i, I gotta be useful here somehow come on leave, <laughs> leave, leave me something um, the other breakthrough for me, Brian, um, was giving like, you've got to think about how to make it easier for the customer, right? The other big breakthrough for me was pre-made cut sheets, right? A lot of times you get, you know, a half or a whole, you throw this cut sheet out at someone who's never seen one before and they're just lost. Right. And you got to kind of wade through it with them and, and figure it out. When I made up six pre-made cut sheets, just, you know, here's the easy button. 
Do you want oh, one, I- two, three, four, five, or six there? I just did random different cuts with some one had pork chops and one, you know, one, one had side pork, one had bacon, you know, uh, just a we- random yeah. uh, variety. And boy, we that worked a, well. An easy form to fill out. And uh, people that have never ordered beef find it really easy to follow. So, okay. Yeah. yeah they, they didn't even have to fill this out. They just said, yeah, oh. I like number four. Oh, <laughs> right? okay. Boom. The easy button, right? And if okay. they wanted to change one thing on it, right? I like number four, but can I get this instead? Perfect. Oh, yeah. Done. Like that is such an easy phone call <laughs> <laughs> compared to trying to explain all the different cuts and the parts and the this and the that. And, and would the butcher do this or right? Uh, that, that was a breakthrough for me as well. Those pre-made uh, cut sheets. So another neat thing to do, if you can break into the markets, although it can be a challenge is to break into some of the ethnic markets. So like the, the Caribbean people really like the pig heads and feet and like some of those parts that we would just never consider. Um, so if you can break into some of those markets, that, that can be a really good bonus too. You can yeah. get $8 a pound for a tongue, beef tongue in Winnipeg, but you can't give them away in Brandon. <laughs> we we have random pig heads in our freezer now because she's got people at church that want pig heads. <laughs> Good fun. Um, next up is Black Barn Farms, and that goes with marketing too. Yeah, so I don't want to really beat this to death too much since we just spent so much time on it, and this is actually pretty good. Um, but the one thing we really do is like the high end, uh, cuts of both animals of, uh, pork and beef. Uh, so our big focus is we do, uh, fodder fed, uh, beef and pork, and we do everything like rotational grazing and, uh, forest raised pork and all that. And I guess my question is like, how do you market that extra labor? uh, into a product, I guess. I don't want to, again, I don't want to beat this subject to death since we talked about so much, but I just, any tips would be great. Thanks. Um, so just to clarify the question, you're saying, how do you, how do you justify the extra labor for the fodder or the extra labor for just the fact that they're out on pasture and you're moving fences and it just takes more time to raise up an animal? Yeah, it, the whole combination of what you're saying, but like we live in a very unique, like honest, ironically, the only person that would know where I live is the last guy that was up from Winnipeg. But we live like in the in the bush in northwest Ontario, like the, the your stereotypical Canadian that you see the lumberjack. We're the only place that actually has those, uh, other than Quebec. Uh, so. <laughs> um, so we're like a very uh, loosely populated area with a lot of like northern reserves and a few communities like that so we have to like everything small i guess is my point so i'm just kind of curious if you have any tips for doing that kind of thing uh well steve said i had to always go first so uh here we go um um, i think i think right off let's see Um, how are you marketing your product now what is it primarily going to like restaurants retail individuals what are you doing now uh, so for our big issues, we have a backlog of retail beef, but because we live in a heavily forested area, it's very different, difficult to find like massive pasture land and none of it is fenced because it's all been abandoned. Like it was all, uh, settled, uh, and abandoned land basically. Um, so it's okay. like starting to get overgrown with like pine trees. So it's turning really acidic. So like our big thing is like with what we're trying to do with the regen egg is we try 
to broadcast seed behind it and not to go into too much of our operations, but we, we do as many steps as we can in the regen egg, uh, mm-hmm. uh, market. uh, for our marketing, we have a, uh, Instagram and Facebook presence, uh, that actually, to be honest, my wife does most of it. And, uh, sure. <laughs> tries to do that, you know, two, three times a week to post and all that. Right. Uh, but I'm just, I'm just asking for any extra tips, like, um, Right. I, well, I guess, I think, like, how do you approach a restaurant? I guess would be uh-huh. one of my questions to sell. Okay. You. Okay. Well, I guess so. So the reason I'm asking is because it, it helps me understand, like, if you're selling like to a store or for, for restaurants or what are you currently, and then when you have this extra beef, is it any particular cut of beef right now, or is it just your whole beef? You say you have extra beef to sell. Um, is it a bunch of beef in general, or is it specific cuts at the moment? Uh, so the big thing is we have a backlog of the bulk orders of beef. We're doing okay with the retail, but we would like to expand it in the future. So it's right now we're just at the deep freezer stage, uh, mm-hmm. but we're hoping to add like a walk-in freezer type situation to, to do more. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't want to do the cart before the horse. I want to make sure there's actually the market for that before mm-hmm. I commit to something like that. Right. So you're saying you're growing and processing more beef than you're selling at the moment correct did i hear that right uh no we have more uh requests than we have supply oh oh oh, oh. okay okay i'm sorry yeah. uh, all right yeah yeah uh, <laughs> the american gosh i'm dense okay um so let's see okay so you are you are you are underproduced and over-marketed, but you're trying to figure out how to value add so that the stuff you grow is more valuable. Am I exactly. hearing that right? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. I'm sorry. sorry. I'm with you now. That might be my okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I got you. Okay. So here, here's, here's what I would say. I mean, number one, that's a great problem. So here's, here's one of the rule of thumbs. Again, I'm going to steal this from Alan Nation. Maybe you've heard it. We think it's a good one. If about 10 to 20% of your people aren't complaining about price on a regular basis, you're too low. So I would just say in general, if you're sold out of product, again, we're, we live in the great old USA where it's not where it's not quite as what it used to be, but the idea of, of capitalism is king sometimes. And so if you're out, oh, sold out, raise the price. And so, I mean, that's the simplest answer to this question, of course, is just to say, hey, if you don't, it's supply and demand. If you have not enough of what people want, charge more for it. Fewer people will be interested in it. And, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be making more for it. Um, now, that being said, you want to grow more and you want to expand. So that might not always be the case. So let's talk about both. I get you. I think that kind of goes back to some of those things we were talking about in the last question is that it's, we found that number one, restaurants are very rarely the solution to your problem just in general. They're usually slow pay. They can be fickle. They want a very specific cut and a lot of it. And so one restaurant might want all your fillets. Well, great. Well, one restaurant's going to blow through like 10 fillets in a week. And then what, you know, then you're out of, you know, maybe you're raising more than that. I don't know. I don't know what your supply is, but I'm guessing if you're any, I mean, we're raising over, we're butchering almost 300 beef a year. And we don't sell any filet to a restaurant or any even ribeye or New York or anything because they want too much of it. And it just blows through inventory in no time. Now, restaurants are good for the problem products, the slower moving products, like, you know, a bunch of ground beef or soup bones or, 
you know, top round or chuck or things like that. Sometimes you can get into a restaurant that wants to grind their own chuck beef, you know, and have their own burger so they can say, you know, fresh, never frozen, ground in-house chuck burger, you know, so you can send them a whole chuck and then they grind it up. Anyway, that's great for that. I guess my, my, um, my jump from the last question that's different from what I said already is to say that looking for a different clientele is helpful to value add the entire product and find those little niches that can be, um, that, that you can, not to say exploit in a bad way, but that you can leverage. Okay. And so for example, if you can, and Amber mentioned some, some ethnic markets, well, they're really into those specific cuts. Well, suddenly if they're really into like the skirt and the flank and the hanger steak and, and the tongue and things like that, suddenly you're able to jack those prices up a lot and then offer some discounts or lower prices or keep your prices the same of some of the other products. Now, so that's just how to market the whole animal. Now to say, how do you value add the extra labor? A couple of thoughts on that. One is theoretically, if you're raising pasture animals, you should be a least cost producer. So your labor is in place of the expensive grain or fuel or petroleum that an industry animal is using. And we're seeing that now. I expect you're seeing it there in, in Canada as much as we are in the U.S. is that industry beef prices are coming back to us and our prices are not going up as much as their prices are because we're not using the grain and the fossil fuels, et cetera. Our prices are going up some, but not at the percentage that theirs are. Then to, to, to value add all the other product, um, it, it really is, and I say, I think this is, this is answering both of the questions. It's tapping into different clientels. And what I mean by that is different groups of thought. All right. So for example, we have um, the Weston A. Price Foundation. I don't know if you're familiar with them at all. And they are big into like bone broth and like uh, internal organ meat and things like that. And that's their whole like shtick is to heal yourself with bone broth and things like that. It's called the Weston A. Price. Weston, capital A, it's a you know, initial price foundation. And they have chapters all over the U.S. Do they have any in Canada, Amber? Do they? Steve, do they have, they do? Okay, so they have them in Canada. Anyway, if you can, yeah, there we go. Thank you. So you get, you do that and they want all the bones and the liver and the kidney and all this stuff. And so what I mean by that is you connect with, you connect with them and suddenly you have market for a bunch of that kind of product and then ditto other stuff, whether it's whether it's um, again ethnic markets, whether it's a high end, you know, uh, like a you know country club type market, you know, with, that wants all those steaks and stuff. And so it's about finding for us because we're in the more retail side of things and not the like what Brian was talking about. We're always looking for balance in our inventory. So every time we find a Weston A. Price customer that buys a bunch of uh, bones and soups, stocks, and things like that, we're looking for we call them soccer moms, but that's probably something higher, you know, country club uh, couples, you know, somebody's driving a BMW or Mercedes that's looking for just chicken breasts and, and that kind of thing that, that keeps your balance correct. Okay. And so that's what we're trying to do to create balance. And there's probably more, but I think I need to stop there, but that that's kind of what I'm talking about to try to find balance. And, and as you do that, 
you can then ebb and flow your pricing to value your stuff. Now, if you're doing the fodder, you can also add that to your marketing stick, which I'm sure you are. And that helps a lot. And you just have to find people who think that's very valuable. So anyway, that's as much riff as I can go on that for the moment. <laughs> go ahead, Steve. Yeah. Um, um, my addition to that would be actually more on the supply and demand and how things are going currently in our market. Uh, I don't know about, you know, out in Manitoba there, but COVID has actually kick, you know, kickstarted the direct marketing in, in our area quite a bit, right? When COVID hit, everybody was like, oh, we need food. And all of a sudden we were sold out. And so for two or three years now, it's been doing, you know, going really well for direct marketers uh, in our area that I know of. But my warning is it might not always last, right? There's always this, you know, issue of supply and demand with direct marketers. I mean, we went through it in Alberta for sure. When, you know, we were selling pigs and, you know, we we're growing and we we're selling them all and we'd get bigger and we sold them all. And then all of a sudden, Alberta hit a economic crash. And all of a sudden we're stuck with 30 pigs we couldn't sell. Mm-hmm. Okay. So right now things are good, right? That's the time, you know, we got lots of customers and, you know, customers are a pain in the butt sometimes and they, you know, they're fussy and, you know, problems. And now's the time to use your human resources and make sure you maintain those relationships, keep those customers. Cause right now times are good because you need those customers when times get bad. And I'm not saying that it's going to crash next year, but it could easily happen again where we don't have this huge demand that we've had for the last two years. So um, it's a, it's a, a game you have to play, right? Like I don't want to expand really big because we've got this huge customer base right now. And then in two years be stuck with, you know, 50 pigs or, you know, 12, 15 beef that you can't sell. So I, I guess mine is just a bit of a warning things are going good. Yeah. We want to raise our prices, but we don't want to raise them too much that we're going to start pushing people away. And then they're kind of offended, but we've got to make sure that we're making a good profit. Uh, and, uh, just be gentle on it is, is, I guess my advice. A story to kind of go along with that. And it's not on food. This one's on puppies, but so Steve and I have a male and female Australian shepherds and we were, we had a couple litters of puppies and, you know, had no problem selling them. We were selling them for, I think like 800 and $1,200 a pup, depending on what they looked like. And so it was really easy. But then when COVID hit, we saw that the markets were going to change. All of a sudden, everybody was buying puppies and And to me, that was a big warning sign because that means eventually people are going to stop buying puppies and you're not going to be able to sell any. So we went and had our female fixed right away. Um, But Steve was still breeding our male to one of the neighbor's Australian, miniature Australian shepherds. And she actually, it took longer than I thought it would when, you know, as, as things wound down with COVID. But so she got a few litters where she made a lot of money off of it. But then this last litter came along and she couldn't sell any, like hardly any of them. So we ended up taking one for free. Etienne has a puppy for free that he got because she couldn't get rid of them. And I mean, this it's markets. It's, it's the way it goes. So yeah, what Steve was saying is a really big thing just to make sure that keep a balance. Keep It's really hard to keep things in balance, but it's super important because you don't want to be, have so much stock that you can't get rid of it. If, if things fall flat, but you also want to make sure that you have enough stock that you can keep customers interested and keep up customer service at the same time. 
Daniel, I think your dad was saying that uh, when COVID hit, like instantly all your restaurants quit, just that's crashed. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was taking notes there. That's not exactly right. Um, yeah, so the, the diversifying your market buckets is so critical because, yeah, in the 2008 recession, um, a lot of our homeowners quit and, 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 and changed their buying habits too. You know, we went from having a lot of steaks and high-end product available to then sudden, uh, or, or being, sorry, being sold out of a lot of high-end steaks and that recession happened, boom, everybody switched to ground beef and chuck roast because a pound of chuck was the same as a pound of filet at just ha- at a third the price. So yeah, having those ability to swing and be available is, and being, um, being mobile, you know, being able to, to shift your, your market. I think that was the big funny part, like. I mean, like when COVID, right? You know, everybody ran and got toilet paper, right? You guys run out of toilet paper up there. Everybody ran out of toilet paper. Well, it's not suddenly that everyone had to go. It's just that it was in. <laughs> it, it suddenly, it suddenly was because everybody was going in a different place, right? So the big like syntax or like the Cisco bulk boxes of toilet paper that went to like a school or a hotel or a restaurant those were not packaged for individual retail sale on the shelf at your local supermarket. And so because everybody was at home going there, they couldn't change gears to move the TP from bulk to retail. And the nice part is that everybody on this call should either A, be able to, or B, take steps to. So all we had to do when that hit with us we just shifted and everybody started getting it delivered. We already shipped product. And so as soon as people didn't want to come to the farm and get it, they just started getting it shipped. And all of our product just diverted to that stream and boom, we sold just as much. We sold way more, but, but that's the, that being able to be nimble and that's great. Flexible. You're saying it's important to be nimble and flexible when buying toilet paper. <laughs> C&I or was, using toilet paper. Maybe that's the point. I, 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 said, I said during that whole thing, I said, you got to be kidding me that somebody somewhere isn't going to a gigantic warehouse of those gigantic rolls that go in like, you know, rest stops and airports and all that stuff and isn't able to slap like individual retail prices on those things and throw them out in Walmart. Are you some somebody's not making money and not thinking? Right, goodness, because it's sitting in a warehouse somewhere, not being used. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> are we? Are we? Are we almost to the point where the gloves come off? Is that what you were talking about? Like the wheel? not quite. We have twenty five minutes still. Oh, so oh shoot! You're oh, okay. you're ready to go there for that, aren't you? I was you? ready for the. I was ready for the wheels to come all the way off. Let's go. <laughs> See, and I thought you were going in a different direction. I thought you were gonna be like, we should have been selling leaves when they were like, finding toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess my, I have a question and my question would be if you guys have a lot of interns and things, and oh. I know with us, we talk a lot about human resources and I know it's not always the most popular topic, but I think yeah. when working with people and especially with as many people as you guys work with, cause you, you might want to talk a little bit about how many interns you guys have, mm. um, what have been your biggest challenges and how have you overcome those? Mm. Uh, well, this will definitely take us until the wheels come off. Cause that's a big question. <laughs> um, uh, 
So yeah, so we run we run a anywhere from nine to eleven persons. We call it a steward team now, um, only because a lot of folks have the intern phrase has kind of fallen on some bad times. You know, that's a person who like makes the copies and like gets the coffee. So we we really felt like that. We also think that titles matter. Um, so I think that you know what you're assigned to do um, has a lot to do with your title. And that's not to disparage anyone who has interns. It's fine. But it's just a, ch- a choice we made. And so we, I, I will use the word steward in place of the word intern here. And we feel like it was very important for them to take ownership of themselves um, to say that they have as much power to steward the land, the livestock, the polyface name, the customers. Um, <laughs> so I got distracted with the comments. Um, and uh, and so th- that is really important to to have that kind of title and value to what they were doing. So we changed the steward. Okay. So we have nine, 10, 11 to nine in, uh, stewards, almost said interns are stewards. And then we have three, typically two to three apprentices. As I alluded to earlier, we have two young ladies um, this year that are just started. So they come out of the steward program. So we have stewardship is May through October. And then out of that group, we choose the, the apprentices and the apprentices are with us October through the following October. So once the apprentices graduate, um, when these two young ladies graduate, they will have been with us 17 months um, in total, just to get give you a perspective. So you know, what have we learned? What are the challenges? How do we overcome on that kind of a part of your question? Um, it certainly is the most challenging part of our operation. I mean, I know that if I buy a cute little fluffy baby Cornish cross meat chicken, and I give it this kind of feed and this kind of conditions for this long, I will get this big, gigantic, ugly meat chicken, and it makes me money. With people, that doesn't work. Um, And so it, it is a constant, it is a constant challenge for what to the, the HR, I think, I think just in general, HR is human resources part of our farm. As we grow, we're talking about, you know, small animals on a large scale. The downside of small animals is they're typically labor intensive, you know, chickens, eggs. I, I put all those kind of birds, those kind of rabbits, even um, those are all kind of in that small category as opposed to the large animals, sheep, pigs, goats, cows, et cetera. Um, and so that's kind of where you get into this human resource issue, right? Because you have to hire people, you have to get people involved and in, in that kind of thing. So, you know, I guess bottom line is it is, a, it is an annual challenge because what you did for the last person doesn't work for the next person. It's completely individualistic. Um, I really believe in individual leadership um, in that, you really have to find out what this person wants or, and that doesn't mean I give that person everything they want, but I am interested in what makes them excited, what motivates them, what keeps them, anyway, it, it just what, what keeps things, what keeps things going for them? What, what gets them excited? What gets them up at night? or in the morning, not uh, keeps them up at night, but once it gets them up in the morning and gets them excited, gets them that fire in the belly, whatever you want to call it. And so, so each person that we have on staff, not just the stewards, but also on staff, 
we try to learn about that and and just encourage it and flourish it. And so we have a lot of a lot of our staff have have just naturally taken their course in their life's flow to fall into those categories, whether it's team leadership, poultry management, cattle management, you know, all those different things, they flow into those naturally. I'm not going out and just saying, Hey, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. Or, or, Hey, here's my job description. I'm looking for this person right now to fill these roles and they have to only do those roles and that's it. And so I think it is important to be individualistic like that. And then realize at the same time that you're just not going to please everybody all the time. Right. So it's important to just know that, that you just because everybody on the team wasn't happy with you today, doesn't mean that you totally messed up and you have to redo everything. Just sometimes, you know, you don't get along with everybody and that's okay. So I think some of our specific, some of our specific wins I was showing this to somebody just today. Here's the um, the the Polyface Steward packet from 2021. It's a very large, like three ring binder packet of lots of information. We've concocted that to be able to get a lot of information to them about what they're expected to do. You know, hours of work, where they're going to stay, what they're going to do, what they're going to learn how much they're going to get paid in kind composition, compensation, housing, food, time off, all that stuff. And then it also comes with a checklist, which I won't bother showing you, but it's a checklist of things that they're going to do throughout the summer. And so it might have for us, again, we're doing a lot of the meat birds. So we might have gut chickens. So the, so the gut chickens, and it might have 10 boxes out from it. So they can gut chickens one time, they check a box. Great. But does that really make them an expert at gutting chickens? Of course not. We believe that 10 times gets them at least enough times to be proficient at it and that they could like put the knife down, go away from six months and come back to it and still be able to pick it up and do it again. And um, so we have kind of those different boxes in there. So they know, okay, I'm going to gut chickens at least 10 times. Now, most times they gut more than that. But by the time they do it a minimum of 10 times, it's like, Y'all are big into hockey, right? So, <laughs> so you got the hockey season just kicking off, right? And you've got shifts and you've got your A shift and your B shift and your, your lines and your, you know, your penalty killing teams and those kind of things. And what we find is that each person on the line, especially from a poultry perspective, drift into these lines and, and, and fall into their roles. And so what we don't want is someone to just do gutting. We don't want somebody to gut chickens for six months and someone else never to gut chickens for six months. So they have to do it the minimum of those 10 boxes. But at the end of that, as long as they hit those boxes, then they can drift to whatever job station they like the best. And that's fine. And on days we got a lot of birds, it's like, all right, we got to make time. You don't put a slow gutter in the gutting department to check the box. We say, okay, today we need you on killing because you're fast at killing. We need our fastest gutting shift. We need our penalty kill team out there to get this done, right? And you put your shift out there to get it, to get it rolling. So to get your goal scored. But um, anyway, I know you're not all into hockey. I don't mean to stereotype. I like hockey too. I think it's a great sport. You get to have somebody that has something you want and you can just hit them and take it away. Great sport. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
like being a goat, right? If you don't like someone, you just headbunt them. So yeah, <laughs> no, it's great. Um, exactly. I could talk about human resources all day. I just got back from uh, Jackson, Mississippi, where I teach a school with uh, Daniel's dad, uh, Joel Salton. And I oh, love boy. the... Sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> And I, I just love the human resources comp- component of that, right? We get to get into personality styles and there's, you know, different personalities and different, you know, what makes someone tick, right? What, 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 like you said, what gets them up in the morning? Yeah, we could go all day on this topic, but we, we probably shouldn't. Uh, Daniel did a great job here, but yeah, human resources is the most important part of my business by far. I just want to emphasize that. Like that is, that is key to, the, you know, and I don't have very many people in my actual operation compared to, to Daniel, but there are so many people just outside of my business that I need to deal with on a daily or weekly or monthly basis that are integral in, in you know, parts of my business that I w- would not, you know, I wouldn't be able to make them viable if I, if I didn't have a good relationship with those people. So customers, landowners, you know, uh, you know, pork customers, uh, the, the cattle customers for the grazing. I mean, there's all sorts of different people that are involved. Uh, hay suppliers, all of these relationships, truckers, they're all so important to my business and, and understanding how to keep them happy, how to keep them uh, in a positive relationship with me. We talk about uh, Stephen Covey's uh, emotional bank account, right? We got to make deposits all the time. Uh, and that way we can afford to take a withdrawal later in, in our emotional bank account. So, um, yeah, very important is the HR portion of our farm. Yeah. That, that, uh, that Grant Estrade talks about the inner team and the outer team, right? So your inner team is the people that you actually are on your payroll and you have to work with them. And that's kind of what I was talking about, but then you just brought up the outer team, which is not on your payroll, but actually in the real scheme of things, more intricately involved in your success and failure than your inter team sometimes. And so, yeah, you get a bad batch of calves or bad hay, or in our case, bad feed or bad batch of chicks or whatever, those people that can really mess you up from a long perspective. So yeah, I I definitely spend more of my time on human resources than I want, but I don't spend enough time as much time as I should. (laughs) I think we're all guilty of that. It's, It's something we don't do, but it's definitely briefs the most rewards. I liked what you said about letting people kind of they they naturally will kind of fall into where their their strengths are. Um, mm. We found that with us. I mean, I did the I did Etienne's job for six years, but I'm definitely stronger on the social media and and marketing side of things. You right. Know? So yeah, I, I think that that's really important and good point. And speaking of Etienne, he's up next. I was wondering. Uh, what are you looking for as signs of like good recovery after the pigs have gone through? So I know that's totally environment dependent, but I don't know if you have yep. rules of thumbs or something. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very great question. And I can be very specific in this one. I've had to be very vague most of the evening, but that's a great <laughs> specific answer. My rule of thumb is that you want to see full recovery with two, you want to see full species recovery to whatever species you have there. Okay, so if the pigs go through and they're eating grass, as soon as the grass grows back to what it was before or well, not, I mean, if you're trying to move bush forward to pasture, you don't want it to go totally back, but you want it to go like to full growth of potential again. So like when you're talking about grazing, you're going from, you know, grazing it down to full recovery, grazing it down to full recovery. 
So the pigs, it's the same deal. And so you put that in comparison to say in the woods, like in the wood woods, then you want to be careful because how long does it take for that understory to regrow and to be ready to harvest again? Well, most times a whole year. And we see a lot of people doing a lot of damage to their woodlots and to their, their bush areas. Again, if you're not trying to kill everything, to be, I mean, that might be your goal. Well, then you can put them in as often as you want. But, um, well, I say, with, hold on, I'll get to that in a second. But to maintain, to maintain the, the species as it is, so in our case, if we've got oak hardwoods, then we're going to put the pigs in those paddocks literally once, maybe twice a year to harvest the acorns in the fall and to maybe eat out some of the green vegetation that's grown up in the spring. And that's it. And we don't come back again. Juxtapose that with some of our pasture pork, where we're actually running them on the grasses, we might graze those paddocks four times a year because the, the, the grass is recovering faster. Okay. So that's some of the things. Now, if you're wanting to totally change the landscape, you can put the pigs in more often as long as there is sufficient recovery from a nutrient. And I'm going to say basically, I mean, there's other things, but nitrogen specifically uh, load metabolization. Okay. And so this is probably where Steve can, can riff on this a little better than I can, but the idea is that you're not putting down more nitrogen than that land can use and metabolize and turn into something else. Okay. And specifically plants, because if you do, then you get into nitrogen toxicities, you get into typically bare ground and more open areas, which is where pathogens live. And then the pigs are just rooting around in the same dirt and their same manure. And that's when you start having real, your real um, health issues in your pigs and things become real problematic. So I'm for, I'm for a lot longer rest periods in pigs than most people, just because most times the opposite is true. People come back way too often at way too high density, and then they get health problems in their pigs or their land doesn't look good and they have bad you know, land results and it's, it's sad to watch. So those are kind of my two rule of thumbs about how often and when to put cat or pigs back on places. Okay. And as far as like right now, we have a lot of rose bushes and everything, and I'm trying to convert it more into a savanna or grass type of thing under story. Mm-hmm. So we have the paddocks for, to only go through one uh, once a year. So I haven't gone through a second rotation with him. Mm-hmm. But some of the paddocks were impacted harder, depending how I was busy managing Steve's herds of cattle and everything. <laughs> it's all about Steve. Yeah, Steve's yeah. fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all Steve's fault, really. That's what I'm coming down to. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, so my question is next spring, as that recovers, how do I read the recovery to know, okay, yes, I am moving forward to more of a grassy thing or am I coming back as bramble or whoa, I went way right. too hard. I mean, obviously if it's sure. a moonscape coming July 1st, I went way too hard, but what kind right. of recovery right. am I looking at? Well, okay. So, so a couple, a couple of rule of thumbs there uh, for us. One is that um, we typically don't stay in any paddock longer than about 10 to 12 days. Um, that's just kind of general rule of thumb. So don't let Steve keep you so busy that you can't move them at least like 12 days. Now, uh, you can move them more often and that's fine, but 12 days is kind of our maximum. We just find that any time longer than that, that your feed area is going to get impacted, your water area, even if you move it, it's just still too much. 
So I would rather you make smaller paddocks and move them more often when I know that's not easy, but you know, as you move forward in this and whatnot, I would rather you see have smaller paddocks or you might have bigger groups of pigs and that's fine. So then your groups of pigs only stay in there. One of the, one of the, and this is where Steve can jump in probably, but one of the things that we're looking for is how much nitrogen or nutrients are they putting down? And you can manage that by how much feed you're putting down. So our rule of thumb is about, um, one, like 3000 pounds of feed per like half an acre. And you can do the math to convert it to whatever systems you need to convert it to. Um, <laughs> but, but, but basically that's what we're trying to do and per, per time. Okay. And that tells you that you're not putting down too much nutrients. Okay. And so if you have young pigs, like you said, they might be on there for 10 days. And if you have big pigs, they might only be on there for four days but they put down the same amount of nutrients in that different different window of time. Does that make sense? Yep, and yep. so that's our, big, that's our big rule of thumb. Now, when you're talking about what do I look at at the pastures, that's somebody who's going to be, you know, your local resource of Steve to tell you, Hey, are these, are these grass plants moving in the direction you want to go successionally, or are they going backwards? And that's something you have to do just to read the land. Okay. And the species. Fair I can add a few comments to that. One of the things that we had an issue with, we, we were on pasture before, just to give everybody else the backstory. Uh, we rotated the pigs out on an open pasture is about a 10 acre field. Um, Etienne has now moved those into the bush. Okay. So we we've switched. One of the main reasons why we moved them, you know, I wanted to get them off that pasture is we were out there for probably five or six years on that pasture every summer with the, with the herd, the herd of pigs. Now they didn't cover the whole thing they would cover part of it. And then I'd bring the cows in to knock it down. And then the pigs would cover some more of it. Uh, so the pigs always got the regrowth, but I moved the pigs every three to four days, usually maximum. Uh, my goal was to let them eat the broadleafs. They eat the clovers and the dandelions. dandelions and all, and all. That, that's what they preferred. And by the time they got to eat in the grass, they would go for the roots of the grass. And that's how they would, they'd beat up the pasture so bad. And, uh, so the biggest issue we were having with that, because we have added grain, um, we've got a short season here, so we do add grain to the to the pigs. Our phosphorus levels were going through the roof because mm, of all yep. the added grain. So um, we wanted to get them off of there and uh, move them somewhere else. So that was one of the issues that we had. Uh, but bringing those cows in to keep the grass in you know a high quality stage for the pigs, so that mm. automatically had a different species in there as well to try and you know combat any disease pressures or issues like that. So. Very cool. <laughs> Thanks guys. Sorry. I was busy talking in chat. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting distracted here. You can tell that the gloves are about to come off now. So we have five minutes left. Are there any last minute questions you guys want to ask here? I know it's the first one this season. So, but while we have Daniel, otherwise I will get the guys to kind of, do some closing thoughts so maybe daniel will get we'll start with you and if you just want to maybe mention some things that encouragements for producers that are here um mm. some some thoughts what's been on your your mind in the last year Ooh. <laughs> um I, I i think i'll just reiterate a couple of things because i they really have been really top of mind if you will i think that being flexible in your markets has been a big thing for us. It really saved us in the whole 
shakeup of everything that happened in the last few years, um, being able to truly pivot quickly to one market stream to another market stream. But uh, I think that those are those are things that have been very helpful for us. I think another one that's helped here lately to encourage everybody is to uh, maybe somebody else has said this already, but to not be afraid of growth. I mean, we talked about small animals, large scale. Um, we didn't dive too deep into that, but I think, I think just a lot of us when, you know, and I, I raise chickens, I know chickens up there is a little tougher, but you know, some beef and pork and whatnot, but there's definitely a chicken in the egg syndrome there when it comes to uh, marketing and product, you know, sometimes you don't sell more because you don't have more. And so sometimes Sometimes it does take a leap of faith and just saying, hey, we're going to grow more and then we're going to focus on marketing and make it happen. And so I think there's I think there's value to say to yourself. I found even just lately, I found that sometimes just putting things on the list helps you focus on it. Right. So like we needed to market. We were running long on, say, duck eggs and rabbits. We weren't selling enough of those. And so we just put it on the list. We said, hey, we're going to market duck eggs and rabbits. And so everybody in the business knew that we were long on those and we should market those. And then truth be told, it was really more spiritual and supernatural, honestly, because we had people call us that we didn't go market to. They called us. And so um, I think just saying it outright and just saying, hey, this is what we want to work on um, helps get it out there. But um, anyway, don't need to go too down that rabbit hole. But I think just put it on the list for people to know about. And it's everything from, hey, we're going to be more aware of, you know, maybe calves that are hanging back in the mob this year. And we're just going to pay attention to it. Or we're going to uh, put attention on um, our grass regrowth and make sure that it's at the certain point before you know, whatever it is, whatever you really want to focus on. Let's focus put it on the list and focus on it. So anyway, I think don't be afraid of growth. Sometimes it's a chicken and the egg. Sometimes you just have to go for it. And the last little riff on that, I guess, is at any point in your life, you have the capability of making a mistake or a oops of a certain set of value. We were talking with, a we, we had the opportunity to talk with a, a multimillionaire, you know, and he said, Hey, listen, you know, you're in a place where in your business, talking to me, you know, you can make a, a $20,000 mistake and it's not going to kill your business. And then he's like, I'm in a place where I can make a $500,000 mistake and it won't kill my business. And so, you know, he was throwing some money around. I'm like, holy cow, dude, how can you? And, and so make it smart. You know, you might be able to handle a $200 mistake, right? So you might only be able to raise one extra beef and know that, okay, I'm not going to make I might not be able to make any profit on this beef, but I'm going to grow one extra animal. And that might be my mistake. You know, <laughs> I was going to say five bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but anyway, so, but you see what I'm saying? And so be willing to take that risk and, and you'd be surprised as to where that gets you, you know, be willing to say, Hey, Think about your what you've done in your farming business, and you might be young in your farming business or new in your farming business, but you probably have spent some money on something that didn't pan out at all already and say, okay, I wasted you know, X amount of dollars on XYZ thing. It could have been a piece of equipment, could have been an additive, feed, whatever, who knows? 
So, okay, I'm going to now waste that same amount. And it didn't kill my business. So I'm going to waste that same amount of money on something totally different and see what that brings. Okay. And so, for example, I mean, I'm just throwing it out to show you how we put our, put my, our, feet where our, our money is or whichever <laughs> um, is to say, you know, one year we hired a marketer on staff and say, we're, we're committing to pay this person for X number of time. And that's it. And we just told this person, Hey, we're hiring you for this long. If it works, you stay, if it doesn't, you're done. And it's not necessarily your fault. This is an experiment as opposed to going out and spending a bunch of money on like Google ads or Facebook ads or whatever, right? And as it turned out, it didn't work out, but it wasn't a waste. We got a bunch of stuff out of it, a lot of traction, and we learned a lot. And that was kind of what we assigned to marketing budget that year. So just take those and go for it. Yeah. Wasting money on equipment there. I feel like you're calling me out on my videography habit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm Going to Lily has one last question. So we'll we'll do this question and then Steve will get you to do closing thoughts. Yeah. Hey. Um, I guess you just mentioned poultry. And before we wrapped up, I wanted to ask, I guess, what your best advice would be for somebody wanting to just start up in poultry on a okay. 10-acre, like small-ish scale, small area. Mm-hmm. How many birds could you do on that much land? And what would what would be the best way to get started? Sure. Sure. Well, my, my first advice would be, first advice would be to say that you could raise up to, you know, six to 700 birds per acre. So you can raise a lot of birds. Uh, (laughs) You can be pretty big, pretty quick. Um, So, so that's good. I think, you know, our big thing, again, um, that's pasture poultry is what brought us to the dance, if you will. Um, And so one of the things that we like to do is just that I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here and just say, look, make shelters that you can move on a regular basis. I'm going to say like daily because that's where you get your movement going. And so whatever shelter you need to build, that's comfortable for you to move. That's cheap and easy to buy and get supplies for and put together, you know, everybody likes their own thing. So do that. Don't have to make them like ours, make it for what you're comfortable doing. And, um, and then again, like I said, back to that, oops, like how many birds could you eat yourself? Right. So if you say, okay, in a year, me and my family could eat what a hundred birds, 80 birds, you know, I mean, hundred birds is only one bird every that's what three birds a week. Yeah. Somebody's doing math already somewhere. Anyway, it's like three birds a week. And so, right. Yeah. 50 weeks. No, two birds a week, two birds a week. There we go. I see. Yeah. You're putting two up. Thanks. (laughs) Um, Never do math in front of people. Right. And so you say, okay, can I eat two birds a week? Can I eat two chickens a week? Well, probably that doesn't seem unrealistic. And so my point is how much could you risk to have all of your chicken for the year? Well, great. Well, if you did that and you sold half of them, well, now you only have to eat one bird a week and you sold half. And so I guess, I guess my thought is make sure it's movable. Make mm-hmm. sure you can rotate it on pasture. Don't put them over the same ground twice in the year. Make sure you move them over the whole you know, don't come back to the same area. Just keep them going on fresh ground the whole time. And then whatever you do, if you get pre-orders, you can always grow more. That's always great. Pre-orders is awesome. But at the same time, don't feel, go, go into those waters, like I said, knowing that you can eat everything. 
right? And that's kind of one of the reasons people always ask me, why do I not have goats? Well, because I don't like eating goats, which means I don't want to eat my oops, right? As long <laughs> as you're excited to eat your oopses, you're going to have a great, you're going to have a great, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be full and happy all the time, right? right. And so that's my motivation. That's my encouragement to you is just, you know, go ahead and get started. And, and before you get started, go ahead and develop that outer team we talked about, right? So go ahead and contact some hatcheries, check into your feed sources, um, um, get into uh, your, your community, if you will, of, of get into other pasture poultry. There's a, there's a pasture poultry organization that, that is worldwide, but certainly in North America that you can tap into. There's a lot of Canadian members and they'll have information for your specific area um, that you can tap into. They're all happy to share their information, nothing secret. So just developing that outer team will give you more confidence for, for jumping into it next season. Mm -hmm. Lily, are you yeah. in Alberta? I'm in BC. In BC. Okay. As in say, cause Alberta has a small farm slaughter license. BC might have something similar. I can't remember. It was a few years ago when I looked into this last, but basically what that would allow, like in Alberta, the way it works is you can market your chickens ahead of time, like Daniel's saying, and then, so you sell them ahead of time and then you can slaughter on farm. You can butcher them yourself and each person can sell it and you can sell it off the farm and it's perfectly legal. So I, I think BC had something similar depending on how far your nearest abattoir was, but that might be something to look mm. into. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the thing here. Um, it used to be called like class E and D license or something like that. And they changed it to the farm gate. So we're applying for the farm gate, but it's pretty, when it comes to chickens, it's pretty complicated because you go over your like water usage um, which means septics and water treatment and all that kind of um, stuff. So we're looking into it because our nearest, we're pretty remote in BC. So our nearest like place to take them to get them butchered is three hours one way. So yeah, I would definitely have to be done on farm, I think would be the plan. Um, and then we also have huge predator problems, um, cougars and grizzlies and wolves and whatever, Jeez. but, but, I, oh my, a brilliant yeah, Thing that I saw up in Grand Prairie and that would be probably pretty similar terrain to what you have there's a fellow there that if an animal gets a chicken or part of a chicken he will actually hang the carcass up with an electric fence wire and oh, right. that way anything that goes to bite it gets zapped don't want to touch it yeah it teaches them that chickens are bad <laughs> yes yeah, we, I mean, I fenced the 10 acres in like six strand electric so the bears can't get in. And then I'm going to have each mobile thing that you're talking about, um, movable mobile thing covered in electric as well. And I mean, my hope would be to do them outside of this 10 acres in our other pasture that we have. But I, at this point, it's not really until we kind of figure out how to manage predators can't be outside of the compound. You, yeah, wow. you have other animals, Lily? Um, a few cows and we're hoping to like expand. We don't have land like you guys have, but yeah, we have 15 cows and hoping to expand and kind of do the idea is to do kind of the same thing, like multi-species and following one after another and trying to, yeah, just regenerate the land and do all that sort of stuff. But I was going to say that, uh, chickens is actually the gateway drug to farming. Yeah. Like yeah. you get chickens and then all of a sudden there's some sheep there and then some pigs and, but you already have cows. So that that's all right. Um, yeah. My, my addition to that is 
only produce what you know you can market. I mean, similar to what Daniel said, but I had a friend here come to me a few years ago and he was talking about growing asparagus and that he, you know, he was selling this asparagus at the farmer's market he was going to, and he was making a killing at it. And he said, if he put all his asparagus in his garden, you know, and, and put both gardens and asparagus, he could sell, you know, he could make $250,000 on asparagus. I'm like, that's great. But how are you going to market $250,000 worth of asparagus? Right. So yeah. we have to keep things in perspective. Like right. Daniel said, chickens are really easy to, you know, get big at really fast, but you got to be able to market it. Right. It's, it's not just yeah. uh, as easy as <laughs> adding up the money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 600 chickens per acre, that adds up to quite a lot of chickens. I mean, I, in my mind, it had maybe 2000 per season. And I think that's doable in this area. Nobody does chickens here. That's partly why I was wanting to get into it. Everybody does. There's people who do beef and pigs and all that, but it's the one thing that's not done locally. People buy from the hotter rates in Alberta and like a big truckload comes. So yeah, definitely market. Uh, like staff to butcher as well would be one of the like time have a bunch of different Mm -hmm. levels of farming and then uh, thousands of chickens and butcher them all. Yeah. Well, that, that's the nice part about that. So a couple of things that make chicken exciting. And of course, you know, that's, I was, I knew that, that y'all have a lot more different hurdles to get into poultry production in Canada than we do here. I mean, we have our hurdles too, but you definitely have some different ones there with some, with some of the, the, regs and quotas and different things like that. So I know it's tough, but um, so I didn't know how much time we'd spend on poultry, but I'm with, I'm with Steve is that, you know, they're certainly our favorite. They're the quickest turnaround, quickest payback, all the things you just mentioned. And literally, you know, you said you had what, 16 acres, seven, seven acres, 10 acres in this big fence. So you got like 10 acres. Yeah. So I mean, 10 acres, I mean, that's enough to literally like employ an entire person or pay for yourself or, you know, pay for the farm, that kind of thing in just that amount. So that's awesome. The the nice thing about the butchering is, I guess uh, for advice wise, that that's a great, let me, that's a real key piece of advice. Go ahead and spend the money, prepare to spend the money on enough (laughs) processing equipment to make it enjoyable. Okay. Mm Hear, hear me, hear me clearly, because what, what I don't want you to do is say, oh, it's not that many. We'll just heat the water on a pot on the fire. It'll be fine. We've got a cook stove, blah, blah, blah. Then the people you invite over to do it don't like it because it's a nightmare and it takes forever. And then you mm-hmm. don't ever see those friends again and they don't talk to you anymore. And if you say, hey, what are you doing on Saturday? They suddenly have everything place to be but you. So right. what I what I mean is that go ahead. I mean. It's going to cost you probably $2,000, certainly under $3,000. You can get really nice automated equipment. Mm-hmm. And then that makes a job. I, I want you to go be done with your first day of butchering and say, wow, that was tough. That was new, but it was not horrible. Right? Yeah. And so, yeah, you're going to have a learning curve. It's definitely a learning curve, but those kind of, first for what I'm just, I'm kind of following along on the chats too. So for, yeah. if you buy a little, a little drum, if you, if you dr- draw, if you, if you buy a uh, drum plucker and a rot- and a scalder that maintains temperature on its own. Okay. Um, gas or electric, whatever you want to get. Uh, those can run typically like uh 
usually close to a hundred birds in an hour just through those two machines. Mm -hmm. So like a polyface, we have an automatic one and an automatic rotisserie scalder and all that. And we can run about 240 to 250 birds an hour. Okay. Um, and those two pieces of equipment kind of dictate how fast we can go. Now we have to have enough labor on either end of those machines to make that work. Um, typically we're saying about one person per, well, let's I'll do it this way. 12 to 18 birds per person hour. Okay. So if you have, if you have four people, you ought to be able to do 60 to 80 birds an hour. All right. Now that's at a, I'm going to say a B minus to B plus range of experience. So, you know, day one, don't try to do a hundred birds, do like 25 and be done really quick and say that was fun, okay? Um, and definitely, definitely, definitely try to get somewhere, someone on your team get somewhere to butcher birds, especially gutting. If you've never eviscerated a bird, gutted a bird, please get someone from your team to go somewhere that's doing it already to show you how, because that's the part that gets really confusing. And you're like, oh yeah, I just reach in there and pull all the guts out. And you can spend hours like, uh, what's this? What's that? You know, what's the, this is the pancreas. What's that kind of thing? So go there, get the training and be ready to go. Typically, typically we're in that as after our team is trained, as I talked about that steward team, after about two, three months of training, we're going to run um, the last timing they did. I think they did 23 or 24 birds per person hour. Okay. So that's running 250 birds an hour with like 11 people and they're, right. they're crushing. They are crushing it. It's awesome. So again, it doesn't take that long to learn. It just takes some repetition. And the nice part is if you do a thousand birds, you do it a thousand times. So the more you can do, the faster you get better. And, mm -hmm. um, but, but again, forego, forego the tractor, forego the four wheeler, forego the mower, the baler, the horse, the dog, whatever it takes, the vacation, buy the equipment so that you enjoy the processing day instead of it being a nightmare. Okay. And here's the thing. If you do it the whole summer and you don't like it, they have almost a dollar for dollar resale value online right now, because there's so many people like yourself being interested in getting in. So if there's some, um, you know, concern about, oh, what am I going to do if I don't like this or I want to upgrade? There's a ton of people out there just like yourself trying to get in that may enjoy it later and are going to want to buy your product or when you love it and want to upgrade, you can sell your stuff dollar for dollar and boom, you're almost paid yourself back. Yeah. yeah don't, don't take lessons from me and buy like, I bought a hand sausage stuffer. And do you think I've ever actually used it? No. So, so just, just get the good stuff right off the bat. Steve, do you want to close us out? And then we'll just turn off the recording and we can continue talking after that. Thank you. Yes. Excellent. Thank you very much, Daniel. Really appreciate you being here. Your, your, your dad has been a huge mentor to me over the years and yourself. I mean, I, I haven't met you near as many times, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm very appreciative to Polyface Farms. We've been there now twice, Amber. I think we've been there twice. So yeah, it's, it's uh, highly recommended to anybody. If you ever get a chance to go down to Virginia and see Polyface Farms, it's uh, well worth it. Uh, just as a closeout, I would like to thank everybody for being here. 
Um, we're getting back into conference season here now. The, the summer season's kind of over, so I'm excited about getting back out and networking with people. I highly recommend you guys to go to conferences, seminars. The, that's, where, that's where the information is, in, in my opinion. So um, we might actually have a few schools around now. COVID's kind of over, so uh, we're starting to book up schools. Um, I, I think we've got one or two in Alberta, one in Manitoba so far. And uh, we've also been working with the uh, Canadian Forage and Grassland Association, and we're doing a mentorship program across Canada. So uh, keep an eye out for that as well. There's uh, some awesome opportunities to learn about some grazing that way. And if you have more questions, you can easily email me. I'll throw my email in the in the chat box here. And uh, yeah, hope to see you out on the on the road somewhere this winter. It's uh, about time we get back out there and, and start networking in person again. So thank you very much to Grow and to Polyface Farms. Uh, this has been a great uh, starter for our third season of Wednesday Night Networking.